put that on. Ephesians chapter number one this morning. Got my new very vocals now, so I can read and see you at the same time. It's amazing. Yeah. All right, Ephesians chapter number one, and we're going to continue on in our study through Ephesians this morning. We're just about going to finish chapter number one by the grace of God this morning, and uh, we're going to be thinking about verses uh, 15 there, all the way down to verse number 23. And I want, to, I want to set you into the context here that this comes, this, this section comes after what I described to you as the, probably the greatest sentence in all language. How that the commentators are, are, are kind of befuddled at the length of this one sentence that appears in Ephesians uh, chapter number 1 from verse 3 there all the way down to verse 14. It's one long sentence in the Greek and it's majestic, it's glorious. And we looked at it and we've seen all these amazing, amazing truths. And last time we were there, we looked at the, the glorious body that we've been called into. And ultimately that we've been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. To be placed in the full sonship and inherit all the riches in Christ. Glorious. Glorious. And now we move on to this other section where Paul backs that up with this wonderful prayer for the saints. And, and he writes to them, first of all, he, he commends them in verse 15. It's about their faith and their love. But then he goes on, and I want to highlight the end of verse uh, 18, really, or verse 17 of Ephesians 1, where it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation of knowledge in him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. So off the back of this amazing sentence about all this positional truth in Christ, who we are in Christ, part of the body, the glorious body, Paul then commends them for their faith and their love, you know, on to the saints and in Jesus. But then goes on to say, I want you to know this. I want you to know this. He wants their eyes of understanding to be open, to be enlightened. And, you know, to me, you know, the word knowledge there carries this experiential side to it. It's a bit like what I've been talking about this morning. About service. We know who we are, but do we live who we are? And what Paul writes to these believers, he tells them who they are in this amazing truth. And we all say, yeah and amen to that. If you're saved this morning, you say, yeah and amen, I'm in Christ Jesus. But then he goes on, I want you to know what that really means. I want your understanding to be open. I want your eyes to be open. And what I think Paul's driving at, and, and what I want to drive at this morning, is that we need to know these truths, but they really have to have an impact upon our heart. Really and truly, what I believe Paul is calling for believers to do, by extension the word of God's calling for us to do, by extension your pastor this morning, is encouraging you, exhorting you all to do, and myself, is to live theologically. To live theologically. This gentle push to their 
their, their theology to unite that truth between head knowledge, heart knowledge, and hand action. Now, what do I mean when I say living theologically? This is applied theology. You know, I, I like to call myself work on the, on the premise that I'm a practical theologian. That's what I'm studying. That's what I'm doing. My master's in applied theology. And it's this thought that, you know, theology without the right works is, is dead theology. That's the kind of nutshell of it. So how do we live theologically? You know, I mean, it may seem like some, some of you this morning might listen to this, to what I'm saying to you and say, what's the biggest oxymoron I've ever heard? You know, those words don't go together. Theology is for the library. Theology is for the study. Theology is for those who want to get into the deeper things of God. How is theology connected to everyday living? How do we put these together? Because theology is the study of God. God's word, God himself, his character, God's thoughts, all of it. And then there's everyday life, right? There's the bank balance in the morning. There's the job. There's the feeding the kids, paying the mortgage, interacting with people, raising a family in a post-postmodern culture. If you don't know what that is, you're living in it. Hard, difficult. The daily grind of, of marriage. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. <laughs> But listen, it's difficult. Giving half your space away is difficult. That's what marriage is. Two people in one. But there, 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 there are challenges. How does theology then impact this? How do we cross those two worlds? From uh, you know, the study of the, uh, the oracles of God, the study of the character of God, the study of the names of God, to the credit card bills and all the, the stuff that comes from life, all the pressures that we have out there. How do we marry these two? Because marry these two, we have to. The Puritan William Perkins said, Theology is the science of living blessedly forever. Jay Packer, the same kind of thought. He says, theology is for achieving God's glory, brackets honor and praise, and humankind's good. That is the godliness that is true humanness through every life activity. So what they're pushing at, and what Paul's pushing at, and what I'm going to push at this morning, is that our theology should impact our living. We should live theologically. In the world today. Now we come, we gather, and we live theologically on a Sunday morning. We are God's gathered people. But we are called into a new life in Christ. A life of rest in him, but also a life that's called to serve him, and love him, and to live out these theological truths from scripture in our lives that people might see him in us. We're called to live theologically. So Paul, writing to the Ephesians, he says to them, I want the eyes of your understanding to be open. I want you to have a glorious understanding of the things that I have said, of the things that I'm going to say. I want them to impact your life and work in and through you. 
So as we're going to read, we'll, we'll, we'll start in verse number 15. And we'll look through. And our first kind of point is that we need to see the understanding of his person. We need to see the understanding of his person. So let's read from verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Notice what it says there, in the knowledge of him. So Paul is praying for an enlightenment, an understanding of the person of Christ, who he is. What a prayer that is. That they would come to a true understanding of him. This divine enlightenment. This reminds me of, of this truth of Peter as he stands before the Lord and Caesarea Philippi up there and Banus, and he stands before the gates of hell. Questions asked, who do you say that I am? Peter says, thou art the Christ. What's Jesus say? Blessed are you, Simon Barjuna. His flesh and blood hasn't revealed it to you, but my Father from heaven. This is what Peter is praying for here. An understanding of his person. That, or this is what Paul is praying for here. An understanding of the person of Christ. And you think, well, we know who Christ is. But do we? Do we truly know who he is? Because if we truly understood who he was, this would shape what we do. In fact, it would shape everything that we do. The thing is, in the world today and in Christendom today, we are simply, most of us, unfortunately, moral, therapeutic deists. Moral, therapeutic deists. What does that mean? It means simply this. Well, let me, let me take you back a little bit. This phrase, moral therapeutic deist, has been identified really recently, 2005. But it's a, it's a response to what's going on in the world today, in the church today, and Christendom today. Because many Western Christians, and Western Christians lead the charge in this, unfortunately, as, as in many other things, they've opt, opted to this as a default position. So this 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 term, this phrase was coined by uh, Christian Smith and, and Melinda Denton in their book Soul Searching. And it was based on national research that they did among the teenagers at the turn of the millennium. So they went and, and kind of, you know, did this survey across the teenagers. And they, they identified from these teenagers several core beliefs that they held to in relation to their identity in Christ, in the church, etc., when it came to the things of God. And these, these teenagers are now our adults. But this is what they identified. Here's the components that char characterize their thinking and their behavior. Number one. They hail to a position that God exists, he created and ordered the world, and he watches over human life on earth. Number two, 
God wants people to be good, nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible by most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. Number five, God places very limited demands on people. So these were the core thoughts that came out of these teenagers. One researcher, Barner, writes this, Practitioners of moralistic therapeutic therapeutic deism are not anti-religion or anti-Christianity. They are just not willing to surrender themselves to authentic Christianity's demands or to believe that a real faith would even make such demands of them. So what they did then off the back of that was coin this term, moral, as in, you know, let's live a good life, therapeutic, Christianity or God exists to make me feel good, and deism, that God is removed. We believe in him, but he's not active in our life. He's not active in the world. He's, he's transcendent. He's away. So what's behind this? Because this is what's being raised up. This is the way that's coming up, that this is who God is. He's there when we need to feel good. He's there when we need something. But other than that, he's distant. And actually, if we just try to be good, that's all it is. What's behind that? We simply do not see him for who he truly is. Because if you see the person of Christ, you know that he's not distant. If you're living in faith, you know him as your saviour, redeemed, forgiven, set apart, under the blood. You will know his presence in your life. He's not distant. He's present. So the prayer that Paul's making, that these believers in Ephesus would have their eyes enlightened and open is relevant for us today, that we would truly see Christ for who he is. We want to see Christ as Isaiah saw him. Turn to Isaiah chapter number 6. I mean, this is familiar verses. But... Look at what it says. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The Lord, whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Look at Isaiah's reaction. As he looks upon the person of God. John tells us, John chapter 12, you don't have to turn there for the sake of time, where um, Jesus is, is being spoken of, where it says in John 12, verse 41, these things said uh, Isaiah when he saw his glory and speak of him, and the context references Christ. 
Isaiah 6, when, when Isaiah says the one upon the throne is Christ, he says, high and lifted up. He says, I am unclean, unworthy to look at him. Such is his magnificence. Such is his majesty. Such is his glory. And that's who we have to see when we look upon Christ. And that's Paul's prayer and that's my prayer that we would have eyes like Isaiah had. That we would truly see him for who he is. The eternal king. The Lord Jesus Christ. The flawless and forever one. The creator of all and the sustainer of all. That's who he is. If we have a real understanding of his person, how can that not impact what we do? I'll tell you why. Your eyes have been blinded by the God of this world to who Christ is. At the new birth, your eyes are opened. And then the devil does a good job of trying to put more glasses on you, darken your vision of who Christ truly is. Paul's prayer and my prayer for us all is that we would have a better understanding of his person. Secondly then, we're to come to a better understanding of his promises. A better understanding of his promises. Look at verse 18, Ephesians uh, chapter number 1. Paul says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Notice what he says, that you might know what the hope of his calling. Billy Graham says, for the believer there is hope beyond the grave because Jesus has opened the door to heaven by his death and his resurrection. I'll add a little bit on there for Billy and Helping with theology, which was a little off at times. And his ascension. It's not just his death, not just his resurrection. It's his ascension. He opened the gates to heaven for us by his entry into heaven as the accepted Lamb of God. Paul's prayer is that we might know the hope of his calling. This hope doesn't mean doing nothing. It's not a a passive hope, it's an active hope in him. It's not fatalistic resignation. Oh, Christ is coming, whatever. But it means going about life knowing that we have an eternal hope in him that's unchangeable, unmovable and unbreakable. That you might know the hope of his calling that you might know the riches of his glory, do you truly think about what he has for you, what he's given you, and then what he has for you? Eternal riches, eternal position, eternal privilege. See, Paul is praying to his readers, and he's asking them, and he's compelling them to see what they have in Christ, to understand the promises, not just from the book, but in our lives, that we would walk in them. Truly walk in them. Do we live like that? I want to ask you honestly. Because you're answering the Lord here. Do you live according to the promises that he has given you? 
Knowing that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. Knowing that he always has you in his hand. Knowing that truly we are immortal till our life's work is done. It is God that is sovereign over us. It is God that gives us today. It is God that will give us tomorrow. I wonder how many of us truly live theologically. I'm going to confess to you there's times that I live far from theologically. When I get bogged down in the minutiae of ministry, in the discouragements, in the distractions, in the difficulties, like this work depends on me. My goodness, nothing will be further from the truth. It depends on the Lord Jesus Christ and him and him alone. We've got to truly understand his promises. And Paul prays this for his readers. Let's turn to 1 Peter. I want you to read as Peter, we've been doing this on Wednesdays. One Peter, chapter number one. Listen to the words of Peter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he writes. Think of what Paul has written about understanding his promises and who he is and who we are in him. Peter writes, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, which hath according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the hope of our calling. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Riches of his glory who are kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, you're in heaviness through manifold temptations, and the trial of your faith being more precious of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found under the praise and honour and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, and whom... Though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy, unspeakable and full of glory, revealing the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Peter's just echoing what Paul's saying. That we might know, that our eyes might be enlightened, that our eyes and heart might be open to these truths, that we know the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Beloved, do you truly understand that this morning? Do you know the hope of his calling? Do you know the riches of the glory of the inheritance that lies ahead for us? And does your life show that understanding? What we believe determines what we do. So Paul prays that the understanding of his person will be open to us. The understanding of his promises will be open to us. Then thirdly, the understanding of his power. Look at back in Ephesians chapter number 1. 
Verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us or towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. Do we truly understand this power? I mean truly understand what's being said here. You know, we, we witness the world as it goes to war, and I don't know about you, but at times where you see the kind of rockets being launched, you think about the, 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 the fuel and the power that is there to launch them. If you watch the NASA launches, you know, when the, the rockets go up into space, it's tremendous power, isn't it? When you hear the thunder roll, you think about the power. It's nothing like this. Peels in comparison to the power that's on display here in these verses. This is resurrection power. This is ascension power. Dynamis in the Greek, explosive power. Explosive because of the inherent nature within. Another word used there is kratos power. This is demonstrated power, revealed power. This is beyond and above anything we could think or imagine. This is how powerful God is. He is all-powerful. And the all-powerful God is the God of resurrection. And the all-powerful God is the God of ascension. And that all-powerful God who raised his son, who is now ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, has determined the same for all who believe and trust in him. This is the greatest miracle of all. God does all sorts of miracles in his sovereign will and his choosing. But there is none greater than this. Take a one who is dead and trespasses and sins and turn him into a child of God and an heir of God. What power that we've been resurrected as it were, quickened by the Spirit and ultimately one day we will ascend to be with him. What power this is. Paul's prayers that our eyes would be open to this. I want to read this verse 19 again. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us? To us. According to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, set him in his own right hand in heavenly places. All powerful. Question, church, for all of us. How does this theological truth impact our living? How? How does this impact Monday? Tuesday? Wednesday? Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. How does it impact you? That God is all-powerful. That God is over all. Because living theologically is giving it all to God and trusting in him. That is hard for us. Because our default position is what? Trust in ourselves. Trust in ourselves. 
You know this. You live this. Trial, trouble comes, first thing, right, what am I going to do? But if we truly understand his person, his promises, his power, that should change us, mold us, shape us in a different way. That's living theologically. His person, his promises, his power, then finally, we need to understand his position. Look at verse 21. I love this language. Far above all principality and power and might. Talking about the position of Christ. And dominion. And every name that is named. Not only in this world. But also in that which is to come. And he's put all things under his feet. And gave him to be the head over all things. To the church. Which is his body. The fullness of him that filleth all in all. This position of Christ is a position of preeminence. What do I mean by that? Before all, above all, beyond all. We truly understand this position. If you just look in those verses, in verses 21 to 23, the word all appears a lot. It's trying to tell us something. Scripture is trying to tell us something. Make something very clear to us. That Christ is above all principalities, all power. All nations and all names. Not just here, but in the world to come. What's that? The new heavens, the new earth. What's the truth that Scripture is telling us? That he is all in all. Romans eleven thirty six. For of him, to him, and through him are all things. He's preeminent. Paul writes in Colossians that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things created by him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. How does that theology impact your life? If I was to ask you this morning, what is the preeminent thing in your life? You might say family. You might say husband, wife, partner. You might say job. You might say the trial you're in. But living theologically means saying that no matter what, Christ is preeminent in all things. In all things. That's living theologically. Problem is, we're moral therapeutic deists at heart. God can come in when we need him. And stay away when we don't want them. We've got to understand his position, church. That he is to be the very center of our lives. Revelation. Christ reveals himself at the center of the churches. The preeminent one in the midst of the church. He is the head of the body. Without the head, we are nothing. 
With the head, we are everything. I wonder this morning, do you understand this person? Sovereign God, to be revered and awed and worshipped. Do you understand his promises? That that same sovereign God, creator of all, has given you personal promises to never leave you, nor forsake you. That he loves you with an eternal love. That he'll never let you go. That when you're his, you're his forever. Do you understand his power? That he can keep those promises. Because he's all powerful. That no matter what comes in your life, God is overall. And do you truly understand his position? I mean, is that seen clearly in your life? That Christ is all in all to you. If we're going to take the positional truth that Paul talks about in chapter number one, and we're going to rejoice and say yea and amen in Christ Jesus to all the things we are, then it behooves us, does it not, to live out that theology when we leave this place. Because when we live out the theology, what are people going to see? Or let me rephrase that. Who are people going to see? They're going to see Jesus in you. But if we don't live in a world, theologically, in a world that is full of wickedness, lies, and deceit, then we're not going to stand out and we're not going to show people Christ. We need to let the positional truth become practical truth. That's living theologically. Paul knew that. Peter knew that. Why have we lost that? Why have we lost it? The reality is we have. We truly have. So let me leave you with two points of application this morning. And then I'll wrap up and we're done. Two points of application that I want you to take away and I want you to truly think about and I want you to go deeper into the word of God and and see. Number one, living theologically requires us to understand and accept who Christ is in us, first of all. So we have to accept who Christ is, his person, his promises, his power, his position in us. Truly understand and accept And if you don't understand and accept that this morning, then you pray to God that he would give you eyes of understanding. That he would reveal to you this morning, through the Holy Spirit, through his word, who he is in you. And then number two, living theologically requires us to understand and accept who we are in Christ. This is the two sides of it. That we make the theology... Practice. Take our orthodoxy, right praise, straight, correct, ortho, right praise, doxa, and we make it right practice, orthopraxy. I talk about this a lot. That's living theologically. There is no disconnect between those two, they are two sides of the same coin. We have made a false dichotomy, a false separation 
when we think we can know the theology and not live the theology. We have to live theologically. And if we live theologically, we'll understand and accept who Christ is in us and then ultimately who we are in him. Because right there, if you're here this morning, you're born again, no matter what the world tells you, no matter what you've told yourself, that's your identity. Christ in you and you in him. That's your positional truth. My challenge this morning, like Paul's challenge was, that the eyes of your understanding, our understanding, would be enlightened, that we might know the hope of his calling and the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. That we might know who Christ is and who we are in him. And we would come to this glorious understanding and that we would live by our theology when we leave this place today. I want you to earnestly consider these things this morning. I want you to be in prayer during the week that God would truly reveal to you where you are in all this. Are you living your theology? Or is it just kept for your own personal knowledge? I pray the Lord would challenge you with his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we confess that we fail We muck up, we mess up, we take what we have and we ignore it, we don't live it, we suppress it, we deny it, we fight against it, we ignore it, but Lord that doesn't change who you are, it doesn't change your love for us, it just shows that you're merciful and you're compassionate, that you would take a bunch of misfits such as us. And bless us with these great promises, privilege and position. Lord, I thank you for that. I pray this morning that we would leave challenged. All of us, Lord. Well, I confess I'm not special in this area and I'm still working this out. And Lord, I do ask for your forgiveness for the times that I don't live theologically. I live humanly. Lord, you've saved us for so much more than that. Your sacrifice upon Calvary's cross wasn't just to deal with our sins, but, Lord, to give us a new life in you. I wonder if we can truly claim that we live out that new life. Think of the Apostle Paul's words in Galatians 2.20. We write, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Lord, that's living theologically. Again, Paul says in Romans, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Lord, that's living theologically. Lord, will you help us in our weakness? Give us strength. Give us wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would just 
open the eyes of our understanding that we might truly know these things and live these things for your good and for your glory. Well, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to know you and be known by you. Lord, it's my prayer that each and every one of us would leave this place truly knowing, understanding and accepting who you are in us and also who we are in you. Lord, may your spirit challenge us, lead us, convict us, mold us and shape us until you come again. In Jesus' name.